are listening to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, November 30th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Right after the BBC headlines, if you intend to apply to the University of California for next fall, you've got about six hours left. More coming up on the California Report. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, California could see a 3,000% surge in people flocking here for care. The state is preparing by identifying barriers to abortion. After a roundup of regional news and weather, twin ruminations on inflation from Gary Zimmerman and Mark Cuniberti. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. We begin in San Diego. During a special meeting yesterday, San Diego City Council approved moving forward with a COVID vaccine mandate for municipal employees. City workers will have to show proof of full vaccination or request a medical or religious exemption by tomorrow. Those who don't will have 30 days to comply or face possible termination. Here's San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria speaking after yesterday's 8-1 to vote in favor of the mandate. What we know is that there have been operational impacts to date. Those of you that watched the testimony this morning, I shared the number of missed trash collections, the two police academies that were suspended, the fire academy that was suspended, the number of times that we've had to have operational changes to our fire rescue response because we had over 30 firefighters quarantining at a particular time. The list goes on and on. We are being impacted today, and that's why this action was so very necessary. And so I want San Diegans to be able to interact with its city workforce with confidence that when you call 911, you understand that the individual who's responding to your call will have been vaccinated against COVID-19. Nearly 1,300 San Diego City employees have been infected with COVID-19. And according to city officials, lost work time due to sick days related to the virus has totaled more than $3 million over the past year. The greatest opposition to the mandate has come from the union representing San Diego police officers. It was the only employee union to reach an impasse with the city during negotiations. Police union leaders say the city could lose officers because of the mandate. And staying on the topic of vaccine mandates in San Diego, a temporary injunction stopping the San Diego Unified School District's vaccine mandate for students could be lifted as early as today. A federal appeals court granted the injunction on Sunday. With more background, here's KPBS reporter M.G. Perez. The injunction was granted on behalf of a Scripps Ranch High School student claiming a religious exemption, which the district does not allow. The critical component of the injunction had to do with the assumption that the district was allowing vaccine deferrals for pregnant students. To paraphrase the legal language, the court said as long as those students aren't required to get COVID-19 shots, the plaintiff shouldn't be required either. And the court will terminate the injunction if that option is removed. An attorney handling the case for the San Diego Unified School District says the district has already taken action to remove the pregnancy deferral option and thus expects the injunction to be terminated soon. Meanwhile, today is the deadline for Sacramento City Unified School District students who are 12 and older and school staff to submit proof that they've received at least their first dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Those who don't comply will have to get a COVID test at least once a week. Starting on January 31st, eligible students who are unvaccinated and have not submitted proof of vaccination or a valid exemption will be moved to remote learning as part of the district's independent study program. The district has said it may also take disciplinary 
disciplinary action against unvaccinated staff, but it's unclear what that might entail. And it's still not too late to apply to UC and Cal State schools for next fall. But TikTok, you'd better get moving because today's the deadline. From LA, KCRW's Tara Atrian has more. The bell is ringing for Golden State students to get their applications in for the 2022 to 2023 school year. The University of California and Cal State systems are asking most seniors to upload their final documents by November 30th. The deadlines come during a pivotal moment for higher education in California. After nearly two years of disrupted learning, students who start next fall may be the first to experience a non-hybrid school year. And freshmen applying to the UC system are no longer required to submit their SAT or ACT scores to qualify. Meanwhile, last year there was a record number of applications to the UCs, including large surges in Black, Latino and other underserved students hoping for a spot. For the California Report, I'm Tara Atrion in Los Angeles. The U.S. Supreme Court is set to hear oral arguments this week in a case that could overturn Roe v. Wade. That's the 1973 ruling that affirms a woman's constitutional right to receive an abortion. Now, should Roe be overturned, abortion advocates are preparing for a surge in out-of-state patients traveling to California for the procedure. KQED's Katie Orr looks at whether the state is prepared. The case before the court considers whether a Mississippi state ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy is constitutional. The court's ultimate decision could undercut Roe v. Wade, which does not allow bans on abortions before a fetus is deemed viable, usually around 24 weeks. Shannon Olivieri-Hovis is the director of NARAL Pro-Choice California. She says there will be national implications if the conservative-leaning court sides with Mississippi. We estimate that 26 states will outlaw abortion entirely or almost entirely. And if 26 states outlaw abortion, millions upon millions of women and pregnant people across this country will not have access to care. Because of its liberal abortion laws, California would likely become a destination for people prevented from getting abortions in their home states. Olivieri Hovis says California is largely prepared, but has some challenges. For instance, she says the state does allow for a wider range of health professionals to provide abortion care. But in order to actually be able to make that practicable, they have to get adequate training, and they have to have adequate clinical experience. They also have to work in a facility that allows them to provide that care. And that's not always the case. To address issues like that, the state has set up the Future of Abortion Council, which will identify barriers to care and recommend solutions. Jessica Pinckney is the executive director of Access Reproductive Justice, a nonprofit that helps people access abortion services and is a council member. California is really making strides to kind of shore up our abortion access here in the state and make sure that the folks in California and those who would be coming to California can access the abortion care they need. A recent study found if Roe versus Wade is overturned, California could see a nearly 3,000 percent increase in the number of women of reproductive age who would travel to the state for an abortion. For the California Report, I'm Katie Orr in Sacramento. And on the show tomorrow, Katie will look at the challenges people living in rural parts of California face when trying to obtain an abortion. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, 
focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together on the web at schmidtfutures.com. And the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. And that's the California Report for this last day in November. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening. In regional news, the Union Newspaper of Grass Valley reports that Swift Communications, the parent company of The Union, Sierra Sun, and other newspapers, announced this morning that it is selling its local media and publishing businesses to Ogden Newspapers. Ogden, based in Wheeling, West Virginia, is a fifth-generation family-owned and operated newspaper company founded in 1890 by H.C. Ogden. In his announcement, Robert Nutting, CEO of Ogden Newspapers and the Nutting Company, said the new owners are committed to the critical role of community newspapers. The deal is scheduled to close December 31st, according to the union story. With the acquisition, Ogden will publish 54 daily newspapers and a number of weekly newspapers and magazines in 18 states. Nutting, who is also the principal owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates Major League Baseball team, commented, The Union and Sierra Sun have a legacy of strong local journalism that we are privileged to continue. We are particularly excited to be working with a team at the Union and Sierra Sun that have been recognized as innovators in community journalism. We're sure we will learn much from the dedicated employees who will be joining our team. Founded in 1975, Swift Communications has operated media outlets in western states including Nevada, Colorado, and Utah. A divided U.S. appeals court today reinstated California's ban on high-capacity magazines, calling it a reasonable means to try to reduce gun violence following a spate of mass shootings nationwide. According to the Reuters News Service, by a 7-4 vote, the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals rejected claims by firearms owners that banning magazines with more than 10 rounds of ammunition violated the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment. The majority opinion by Circuit Judge Susan Graber called the 2017 ban a reasonable fit for the important government interest of reducing gun violence that interfered only minimally with the right to self-defense. Today's decision is a temporary victory for gun control advocates as they await a U.S. Supreme Court decision on a New York law imposing strict limits on carrying guns outside the home. A lower court judge had struck down the California ban in 2019, and a divided three-judge appeals court panel upheld the decision in August 2020. The appeals court set aside that ruling in February so 11 judges could consider the dispute. One of today's dissenters, Circuit Judge Patrick Bumate, said high-capacity magazines have been used for centuries and deserve protection under a 2008 Supreme Court decision. Governor Gavin Newsom welcomed the decision. Weapons of war don't belong on our streets, Newsom said in a tweet. This is a huge victory for the health and safety of all Californians. And finally, from today's Sacramento Bee, a team led by scientists at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory has concluded that the Sierra Nevada snowpack, critical to California's water delivery system and tourist industry, could essentially vanish for years at a time as the warming climate erodes snowfall. The scientist's newly published study doesn't say snow would disappear forever. Instead, it predicts that much of the Sierra would experience five straight years of low-to-no snow starting in the 2040s. 
the region could endure 10 straight years with little or no snow beginning in the late 2050s. The implications for California are enormous, the B story suggests. As it is, climate change has already intensified the current drought, scientists say. After a relatively dry winter, an early spring heat storm evaporated a major portion of the Sierra snowpack in a matter of weeks. A future with almost no snow could cripple California water supplies for long stretches of time. In the weather for our region, sunny and breezy with unseasonably warm temperatures for the next two days. Tonight in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low of 59 degrees. Wednesday, sunny with a high in the mid-70s and a low in the mid-50s. In Truckee tonight, clear with a low of 24. Wednesday in Truckee, mostly sunny with a high of about 60 and a low of 26. In Sacramento, a few clouds tonight with areas of patchy fog and a low of 42. Partly cloudy Wednesday with a high of 67 and a low of 41. In this chat with KVMR's Paul Emery, economist Gary Zimmerman delivers some good news on job creation data that has emerged stronger than originally calculated. And with inflation on our minds, Gary weighs whether the rise in the consumer price index is a temporary disruption or a long-term hit to our purchasing power. This economic report is sponsored by Rick Kelb. Wealth Management Advisor with Northwestern Mutual since 1983 on Spring Street, Nevada City at rickkelb.com. Well, welcome back, Gary. Welcome back to KVMR. I thought we should talk about the economic news, starting with the huge revisions in the recent job numbers and then moving on to inflation and concerns about the spike in inflation. Well, thank you, Paul. Uh, Yes, there were huge upward revisions to the number of jobs created this summer when the preliminary monthly estimates were surprisingly weak. So the revised numbers, as more employers are reporting actual data, there are certainly disruptions there from COVID. So the revised data are coming in much stronger. They've added another 626,000 jobs during the summer months. So, for example, the first August number showed only 235,000 new jobs being created. After the more complete August data were reported two months later, the the increase was uh, more than double added, 483,000 jobs in the month. So that's much more, (laughs) much better news uh, for the labor markets and um, for job seekers. So, you know, know, we're still down a few million jobs from the pre-COVID days in early 2020. but that's you know basically much better news coming from the labor markets, and we'll we'll suggest the economy will will be reporting faster growth in the first uh, for the summer. Let's move on to inflation, Paul. Uh, certainly, there is a recent spike in inflation indicators in 2021, um, and the course of future inflation that's on the minds of all policymakers, investors, businesses, consumers, and even economists. Well, Gary, now that's more of the bad news is about the inflation. Tell us more about it. 
Well, there are a number of important inflation measures. Um, they're calculated in different ways and measure different types of overall inflation or the overall increase in the national price level. You know, for example, one of the more popular ones is the Consumer Price Index or CPI. That's the measure of a price level of a basket of goods and services that um, consumers consume. Uh, and it's a popular measure uh, looking at it over a year or over the you know percent change over a, a 12-month period. I like to look at the longer period just because there's you know variability in the monthly numbers and the longer period gives you a better estimate of trend. Well, Gary, why should I pay attention to the CPI inflation index? I mean, how might that affect me personally? Well, the CPI is used in a number of ways, Paul. It, it includes, you know, determining the size of the... <laughs> The size of your annual Social Security payment increases for the folks on Social Security. Um, it'll be determining annual increases in many labor contracts. Uh, the, they're tied to the CPI uh, price index. So the CPI inflation index is you know, really important to many of us. Well, how much has the inflation measure increased from, say, a year ago? Um, can you give us uh, a comparison? Yes, let's start uh, with the published CPI uh, price index a year ago in October 2020. Data indicated that the CPI inflation index uh, over the prior year was rising at about 1.2% at an annual rate. Um, you know, and that's somewhat slower than it had been increasing over the prior decade. But of course, during that period, the economy had just taken a huge hit from COVID. Um, however, as the economy started to rebound and expanded rapidly from the you know, COVID pandemic and recession, the, the problems started arising post-COVID and the CPI inflation numbers began to soar. We had rapid expansion in the economy or parts of the economy, shifts in spending away from the service sector towards uh, more manufactured goods um, and shortages there, uh, worsening supply chain disruptions uh, caused by COVID, you know, labor shortages and rising wages, and all of those sorts of things are then adding to at least the short-term inflation pressures. Well, just how much higher are the CPI inflation uh, numbers over the past 12 months? Okay, well, as, as the CPI has spiked this year by June, it was increasing um, at a 5.3% annual rate over the prior 12 months. And then when the October numbers came in, it had climbed to 6.2% uh, over the prior 12 months. So that's, you know, much higher. And that 6% obviously sent shockwaves through the economy, and it raised questions about whether the spike was temporary arising from the COVID disruptions or whether it was the beginning of a longer-term increase in inflation expectations and, and inflation. But there seems to be a debate going on right now as to whether the spike in inflation is temporary or permanent. <laughs> Good question. Yes, absolutely. If the inflation is caused by the temporary supply chain disruptions and labor shortages, yeah, then we might expect that the economy will return to more normal operation as the temporary disruptions and shortages ease and the you know, inflation pressures you know, going forward should weaken. Um, on the other hand, you know, if the pandemic should worsen or continues and the disruptions continue longer and, you know, the longer a four or five or six percent inflation persists, the more businesses and workers and consumers and investors will start expecting, you know, inflation or inflation expectations to continue. And they'll start building in higher inflation expectations to protect them against the loss of purchasing power caused by a, a higher you know, overall inflation rate. Uh, just uh, if, from my viewpoint, higher infl inflation is the same as a smaller paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it reduces the purchasing power of your paycheck, Paul. Exactly. 
Okay, Gary, thanks for all the information. Lots of things there to talk about and think about. Thank you so much. Talk to you in a couple of weeks. Okay, sounds good, Paul. Thank you. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the San Francisco Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. In today's edition of Money Matters, Mark Cuniberti compares the merits of conventional coinage with cyber currency as a hedge against inflation. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cuniberti. What is the difference between Bitcoin, gold, and silver when it comes to inflation protection? Gold and silver have obviously been around the longest. In fact, since the earth began, these metals have existed. Mankind has used these two metals since he has first established an exchange of goods necessity, and the stories of gold and silver as a medium of exchange date back as far as recorded history. Bitcoin, and the many cyber coins like it, are a little more than a decade old, unbelievably. The length of time in existence is not even remotely comparable. Despite this fact, many have put tremendous faith and funds into this new phenomenon called cybercoin. One of the differences between the two metals and cyber coins is that the metals exist in physical and in the digital world, while cyber coins only exist in digital form. I dwell on that oddity from time to time and ponder that if the power went out all over the world, does cyber coin actually exist? I know the money spent to buy it would still be there, but would the cybers? An interesting concept, yet probably a mute point, as the odds of a global power outage that never comes back is next to nil. That said, the thought does provoke a deeper analysis of what digital currency is versus the physical stuff like metal coins or paper dollars. After all, we can hold the one type in our hand while only being able to view the other on an electronic screen. Although the digital currency and the physical ones have their similarities, there are other differences as well. For one, the price swings in the digital cyber coin arena are wildly volatile, and although gold and silver do have their price swings, they are not nearly as drastic as cyber coins, to say the least. Bitcoin has gone from a few pennies a coin to over $65,000 a coin in under 12 years. Not what I call exactly stable. Since we are talking about inflation protection, a price-stable medium is preferred, making gold and silver the obvious candidate when we consider stability. Many might argue if Bitcoin goes up, it's a better hedge than metals. But the price of cybercoin can go down drastically as well, and has. Maybe a better speculation, but not a better protection based on its price volatility. Ease of transfer is easy with CyberCoin as long as one is connected to a power source and is some sort of computer. Makes you guess what would happen if you went to a third world country with a lot of CyberCoins and no computers. Gold and silver is still accepted even in the back jungles of the Amazon. Not so with CyberCoin, obviously. Gold and silver stocks are also immediately movable when the markets are open, but these are not coins, they're stocks. The coins can be harder to sell, and the spread between the buy and sell price of a coin is significant. Taxes are due on both transactions, and how much is dependent on a variety of conditions. The jury is arguably still out on what the tax liability will be on cyber transactions, however. Gold and silver, having been around so long, are easy to transact in electronic form for many stockbroker firms, as long as you're trading the stock or the stocks that represent the actual coins. Cyber coin exchanges are difficult to use, in my experience, and there are 
are few Wall Street versions of Bitcoin funds that are available as of yet on the major exchanges. The stunning price increases in Cybercoin has indeed attracted a lot of attention. So much so, when comparing price action of Bitcoin or the other Cybercoins to any other asset in recent history, the mania in price increases surrounding Bitcoin and the Cybercoins is the most volatile we've seen bar none. Nothing compares even in the slightest to the astounding price increases and falls witnessed in Bitcoin and some of its cyber relatives. There is little doubt this is a mania of grand proportions taking place in the cybercoin arena. There has been talk that buyers of cybercoin have taken a little bit of luster from the gold and silver market, which is to say some investors are buying cybercoin instead of the metals. That said, it is likely that at least some funds that would have been destined for gold and silver have made it over to the cybercoin. But with the difficulty in the coin exchanges, its wild price swings, and not having nearly the history that gold and silver has, it remains to be seen whether the cybercoins will replace the metals as inflation hedges. In this analyst's opinion, the reasons I've just gave in this newscast tell me that gold and silver are still safer in the more dependable inflation hedge. That does it for today's Money Matters. The views expressed are my opinions only and may not necessarily reflect the opinions of this radio station, its staff, management, or underwriters. This newscast should not be considered recommendations to buy or sell any securities or any other asset and is not to be regarded as investment advice. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio. Station. My name's Mark Cunaberti. Have a great day. That's our newscast. Coming up next on KVMR at 6.30, it's Food Sleuth. Host Melinda Hemmelgarn interviews Melanie Joy, psychologist and author of Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. Joy specializes in the psychology of eating animals, social transformation, and relationships. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! Tonight, Amy Goodman reports on the latest from Honduras, which is poised to elect its first woman president. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Nevada City Picture Framing and Art Gallery, established in 1987 offering a wide selection of sustainably produced frame moldings for custom framing of precious art, archival presentations, and treasured memories. Holiday gift certificates available on Searles Avenue, nevadacityptureframing.com, and Four Paws Animal Clinic. Dr. Susan Murphy and Sue Lester and staff are proud to support KVMR, providing medical, dental, alternative, and surgical services for cherished companions on Searles Avenue in Nevada City, fourpawsac.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weekday at 6 p.m. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Have a wonderful evening as we head into December. December.